check, check, check. All right, check, I'm check, recording. Check. All right. All right. Here we go. Welcome, everyone, to the inaugural installation of Significant Strike Podcast. This is where two people not paid by anyone else to give their betting ideas and predictions about UFC fights tell it how it is. I am your host, Soft, because I'm soft. And with me, as always, is our sharp Val. Val the man. How's it going tonight, Val? It's it's going. Just watched uh, another underwhelming Bellator card. Although it's hard to have an overwhelming Bellator card because they all basically suck. Is it, um, isn't uh, but, Bellator weird? Because uh, it used to be you could see some up and coming fighters, but now you see guys on the downside more than. Yeah, I mean today we had Bader, Lyoto Machida, Zingano, Carmouche. Um, next week we have Julia Budd. It's, yeah, a lot yeah. of that fighters on the downturn, to... and even the contenders that are actually decent aren't that decent. Like if, like watching a contender fight, like last week number three versus number five at welterweight, they would both get blown out of the water by uh, the top twenty five welterweights in the UFC. Right. Maybe this is up 30 even. Bellator used to be, um, these are guys trying to make it to the UFC, but now it's, uh, these are people that could no longer make it in the UFC. It's very weird. Yeah. And there are, there yeah, are some, yep. there are some guys there, like, uh, Pitbull we just talked about, but. Yeah, Nemkov. Yeah, but the, the dynamics of Bellator has changed over the last five to seven years. And you can blame Scott Coker for that. <laughs> All <laughs> right. Let's get let's get right into it because it's a fully stacked card. There's 14 fights. The initial bout of Dumont and Blanchfield is called off. Is that correct? Yeah. So Dumont – okay, so this is kind of shitty because Dumont missed weight again. She missed weight her last two fights for both by three and a half pounds. And it's even shittier because her opponent – Blanchfield was coming up a weight class to meet her, you know, just just for the matchup, and she still missed weight by three and a half pounds, and it's called off because it's kind of shitty if you're missing weight three and a half pounds twice in a row. Twice in um, a row. So that's off. So the, yeah, the first uh, matchup is Platnikov versus Kasanganai. Kasanganai is the guy who has one of the most famous is on the other side of the, one of those famous highlight reels, the Joaquin Buckley jump spinning back kick knockout. Uh, yeah. Last year on Fight Island, yep. was, I think. But before that, he was like highly touted. I, I I don't know why he was so highly touted, really, because he didn't look that impressive. He fought Maki Patolo in his USA debut to a decision, and he looked decent. I, I, maybe it was just the number because he was seven and zero before or eight and zero before the Buckley fight. Maybe that's why he was highly touted, and he has kind of a beastly physical makeup. But I didn't see that much from him to be highly touted other than a decent gas tank. Um, and Buckley, even before the spinning back kick, Buckley, who's not a super talented fighter, like Buckley got his head kicked off by Alessio Di Chirico um, after that fight. Before that, Buckley was pressuring the hell out of Kasanganai and winning the fight from points perspective even. But on the other side, you have Platnikov, and he's... He has a decent 
pedigree. He was like a boxing champ in uh, China or no, he was a boxing champ in New York, but he has uh, belts in some multiple different martial arts styles over in from Hong right. Kong. He's a well-rounded fighter. Yeah, but in MMA, it just doesn't seem to be there. Like, okay, his last fight against Louis Koske on UFC 255, he lost. I mean, he was losing horribly the first round, but then Koske just choked. Or not, sorry. Koske just totally gassed out, like, really, really badly gassed out right after the first round. You could see he was done. And it still took uh, Platnikov two rounds, two more rounds to get him out of there. No. So, uh, uh, yeah, Platnikov's a big underdog here. He's like plus 280, is it? Um, uh, they got him 245, like 245 is the high right now. Okay, this is, yeah. This is the, because this is a betting show, besides the main event, this is the biggest spread on the whole card. No, I think Vittori is actually bigger against Holland, which wasn't always right, the case. Right, no, Vittori... that's what I'm saying. The, the main event, that's, that's the only oh, other aside one. From the, right, besides yeah. from the main event. This yeah. is the biggest spread on the card. What do you think it, here? Is there any money to be made? So, for me, no, I'm laying off. But I know a lot of people are on Palatnikov because they like his pedigree and they like the fact <laughs> the fact that he won his last fight in Kasanga and I didn't. I think a lot of the hype, though, is about Platnikov on betting forums like Sherdog is just about him beating the shit out of a gassed Louis Koske, who's also just not a very good fighter. I think Kasanganai probably wins it. He's much bigger because I, one factor I didn't mention, yeah, Kasanganai is cutting down from uh, middleweight to welterweight. The weight cut could be a problem because he was already a pretty muscular middleweight. Uh, yes. Not super tall or long, muscular. But he made the weight cut. He made weight. He looked a little drained, but he should still have a pretty big size advantage against Platnikov in there. So I think he wins. But at, at minus 300, there's there's definitely no value in that. If there is value, it's on Platnikov. I'm personally just laying off. All right. Excellent. That That's exactly what I do. That That's too much odds. And I, I agree with you that uh, Platnikov could do something there. Um, he's not the favorite, and I don't expect him to win, but betting money there, just throwing it into the wind and seeing if something happens. And that's not yeah. what we're trying to do here. All right, now... Uh, pe- uh, One last thing. People on Shirt Dog, like I mentioned, are are, are kind of heavy on Palatnikov. Not heavy like a lot of money, but like a lot of people are saying, yeah, Palatnikov is the side. We're betting on Palatnikov. I, I, and I think they're justifying it just by his pedigree because he's been in martial arts for a lot longer than Kasanga and I, who got into it at a much later age. But he, it's like, you can't go off of that. You can be great at wrestling, great at jujitsu, whatever, but you have to bring it into MMA. And he just hasn't shown enough in MMA for me to want to put my money on. Now, this next fight I'm interested in because I like Jung. Yes. I mean, we watched his last fight, a uh, draw, which I thought, honestly, Sam Alvey won, but it was still a pretty good fight. Right, right. Right, Just and yeah, we'll get to Sam Alvey later, but you know, he's a buddy of mine, so. Yeah. Right. I, I wasn't necessarily happy about that, but I was impressed by Jung. Yeah. He, I mean, he has granite for hands. He, he has knockouts in almost every single one of his, uh, fights. His last loss was in 2015, back in his, uh, second and third pro fight. 
So he's won. What's that? Uh, aside from the draw, he won 10 in a row, 11 in a row. And drawing against Sam Alvey isn't, you know, it's it's nothing to be ashamed of. No, but, no, because uh, Alvey, not only does he hit hard, uh, so Jung proved he can take a punch, but Alvey can take a punch as well. You know what I yeah. mean? He, he definitely has an iron chin. Yeah. But I, so... I think he would have knocked out, knocked out a lesser person with a lot of those punches. Definitely. I mean, and like like he did uh, to Mike Rodriguez in the fight before that, just one minute in, straight right, knocked him down, ground and pound finish. Um, yeah, so he's he's a decent light. I mean, light heavyweight isn't the deepest division, but he's a decent light heavyweight. He just he has good hands. I, there's not much more to say. He's not super technical or anything, but he throws bombs with those big looping hooks. Um, but William, and he's coming in at minus 140. William Knight, plus 110-ish. William Knight, for a light heavyweight, he is the opposite. He does not have that much in his hands, in my opinion. I mean, he won a decision against Alexa Kamor, UFC 253, in his UFC debut, but it wasn't anything to be that proud of. Um, but overall, I mean, Knight was set to face Alonzo Menafield, uh, two weeks ago before the, the little break we had. And right. that was even money, which Menafield had a lot of hype in the past, but then he kind of dropped off with a couple losses. Um, he's still a good fighter, but so it's interesting to me that the Ozmakers had Menafield versus Knight at, at evens and now Down Jung as a slight favorite because Menafield, I, I do think Menafield is a bit better than Dao Jung because of experience. I mean, he has like five UFC fights. He beat Paul Craig. That's a good win. And his losses are to rank to, to OSP. I mean, he's on the downturn, but he's still a good fighter. And Devin Clark, who I don't think he's ranked anymore after his loss to uh, Anthony Smith. But he's he's still an, another good fighter, a top 20 light heavyweight at least. Um, So... Yeah, that that's just an interesting thing with the lines. It's like, are the odds makers seeing more in Daun Jung than I am? Because Sam Alvey, while good, he is old, quite yeah. old. Like, like yeah. talking about retiring. I mean, it, it's just a weird place with the money. I mean, or I I do think that Daun Jung probably wins. I'm not, I don't even I want don't even want to say probably. It's more of a lean. But at, at uh, minus one forty, you know, implied odds. That's <sighs> shoot. I should have my implied odds calculator up here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I have. Uh, I have someone uh, five dimes has them at one thirty two. Yeah. So yeah. so the implied here is fifty eight percent. So if you think you, Don Jung has you know like a sixty five percent chance of winning. Because with with betting, you want like a five to seven percent edge, right? I, I just don't see that for Don Jung. I'd see him maybe around like a sixty percent chance of winning. So with the with the implied odds and everything, it's an, another one that I'm laying off. Laying off, all right. All right, I, I would too. Actually, I would lay off that fight. Yeah. Now here's one that's more interesting because the yes. odds are much closer, mm-hmm. but uh. Saldana is fucking good. Griffin is good. 
and that's why yes. the odds are so tight. Now, is there some value here? Yeah, so I think so. I like Saldana. It's his UFC debut, but he's one of this new breed of slick strikers that you see. Guys like, I mean, he's not on the level of the guys I'm about to mention, obviously, but he has that same slick striking where he comes in, ducks under your punches, goes out. He uses angles very well. You know, he'll use a jab to turn to the left, set you up for straight right to the side of your head, that type of stuff. Um, his front kick KO on the contender series was really impressive. I mean, it, it was in round three, which a lot of the times in contender series, you're being fed cans and Vince Murdoch, his opponent was somewhat of a can, but he was be also beating him up for the first two rounds. And then the finish just happened to not come until the third round. And Jordan Griffin, he, while he has a couple UFC fights, he has very much below average striking. I mean, the only thing that's, like, concerning, I guess, which it doesn't even work because of MMA math, as we all know, MMA math doesn't work, is he went to a decision with Danny Gay, who, which Danny Gay is about a fight, Korean Zombie, he's a top uh, seven bantamweight in the world, and no, featherweight in the world, and featherweight's one of the most stacked divisions. Yeah. But that, that was back in 2018. Since then, he lost to Chaz Skelly, who's all right. He beat TJ Brown, who sucks, and he lost to Yusuf Zalal. When Yusuf Zalal... Yusuf Zalal is another one, another of these slick kickboxers, but he tried to wrestle with Griffin, and Griffin is a... If Yusuf Zalal had showed better fight IQ, he could have just pieced him up from the outside. Like, what uh, Griffin kept shooting in, trying to get clinch takedowns from the clinch and stuff, and Zalal would reverse him and then just sit on top of him. If he got, Zalal had gotten up and backed up, he could have really put the hurt on him. And I think that's what Saldana is going to do. He's just too slick a slight striker. Jordan Griffin has some decent things from the clinch. He he frames well with his elbows to keep opponents off of him from level changing and getting him down. Right. That type of stuff. He, you know, the basics. He won't be in that position. Yeah. But he, he's just not a good striker. I mean... I, to be honest, he's a little bit below the level of competition of the UFC. I mean, he's one of these guys who makes it to the UFC, loses three or four fights, and then gets cut. And I think that he's already uh, three and one, or one and three, my bad, in the UFC. His only win was against, yeah, TJ Brown, who I believe has oh, been yeah. cut. The, this is a contract fight for him. <laughs> yeah, and which which could impart, um, you know, impart a sense of urgency, and that's something to consider psychological factors. But with the odds being so close, what what did we... We have a uh, minus one thirty can get on Saldana. I, I I see him. I mean, he could get a KO. Jordan Griffin has a decent chin. I mean, Ige was not able to knock him out. And Ige, we we saw Ige recently knock out Gavin Tucker, who's a really good fighter, in like twenty seconds. But um, it, at the end of the day, I I, I think probably Saldana is going to get this decision. Just piecing him up, probably. 3027. I mean, if he, if Saldana shows bad fight IQ like Yusuf Salal and gets into grappling exchanges with him, it could get ugly, but I, yeah, I, I, I really, really think that so, Saldana is going to get the win. I put, well, I'm putting one unit on this one. All right. Saldana here, and you think it's going to be decision, not a knockout? I, I, yeah, I think so. I think decision. I mean, Saldana, it, it, it's, it's lightweight. Saldana's, skinny guy he doesn't have the most power right. he's, but he's a, a very slick, slick striker yeah but, i mean right. he knocked out guys on the the regional circuit obviously like anyone who's in the ufc should be knocking out guys in the regional circuit in the contender series 
but the UFC level of competition will be harder, but still, I, yeah, just the striking difference is too much for me. I think my decision, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not taking any, uh, method of victory bets here. Just straight up minus 130. I think it's value. Bit of value, uh, one unit. All right. Um, this next one is intriguing to me as well, too, because I think, uh, this is the kind of fight when you look at the odds that, uh, there could be some money to be made here. Azur versus Shore. Yes. So this is one of the better value fights and just fights overall on the card. Jack Shore is. Well, okay, so his background is interesting because he's from Wales, which Wales, England in general, has a hard time generating MMA prospects. That's why they push guys like Darren Till so hard, even though Darren Till isn't as elite as they want him to be because the British market is pretty big. But they don't... Uh, these countries, they don't have the wrestling infrastructure in no, colleges but, that they do in the United States right. or Brit- that Dagestan Britain have. is boxing. They're boxing. Yeah. They're not MMA. Yeah. But that's what makes Jack Shore so interesting. And I actually have some extensive notes on him because I'll just preface, start off with it right away. I love him in this matchup. Hunter Azur has good hands, but not the cleanest striking. He uses a lot of hooks while Jack Shore uses his jab to keep you at uh, range. I have right here that actually that Jack Shore is almost like a younger, it's, it's a lofty comparison. But he's almost like GSP just stylistically. He uses his jab to keep range, which GSP was one of the Did first guys to really, yeah. really use his jab effectively. He uses his jab to keep range. And then what he does great is finding reactive takedowns. He doesn't just shoot in. Although there, in his first fight, which was against the total can, first UFC fight against the total can, he did shoot in from distance, but learned his lesson. That okay, I'm not just gonna be able to take this guy down like I did. Uh, regional circuit guys waited until the dude threw a low kick. When he threw the low kick, grabbed on, took him down, and he did that throughout that fight until he got the finish, rear naked choke in round three, which he's on a streak actually right now of three rear naked chokes in a row. He he, he loves his submissions. He only he's uh, what is he 12 and 0, and he only has one decision win. Seven. Eight, I believe, uh, submissions and three knockouts. He has really, just really, really slick jujitsu. Both, so actually, his base is Japanese jujitsu, not Brazilian jujitsu, where he's a black belt in, but he's also a Brazilian jujitsu black belt. But he, he's not just um, a jujitsu guy. I mean, he can wrestle pretty well, especially for someone who did didn't grow up in a place where wrestling is a big infrastructure and he's so young. I mean, he's I think twenty six years old. Um, and those reactive takedowns are going to be really important against Hunter Azure because Hunter throws a lot of volume against his last two opponents. They were kind of wary. Aaron Phillips and Noel and Hernandez were both not UFC level competition, if I'm being honest. So like he was a minus 800 favorite against Aaron Phillips. If that, <laughs> I mean, that tells you something, but they were wary. But when they did throw still those reactive takedowns, like, Stipe versus Nganu won. Nganu would throw wild hooks and Stipe would just dive in beneath that, take him down to the mat. And that's what happened to these guys. Happened both off of punches and off of kicks. Um, and uh, yeah, like I said before, with Hunter is throwing a lot of wild hooks. He likes to load up on those hooks. I think A, Jack Shore's jab gets in there before those hooks. Straight punch is always faster than a looping punch. And the mount that he throws sometimes recklessly will lead 
to the opening for those yeah, take downs, those reaction take downs. Yeah, and like Hunter's there two fights ago. We fought Brian Kelleher, who's a pretty good fighter. Actually, knows Jack Shore because they're both Brits. Um, and he was doing decent. He was winning on points, but then he just got too overzealous and ran right onto a left hook, got dropped, got finished. And that, that was his first uh, loss. His other two fights in the UFC against just okay competition. Nothing that much to speak of. Um, yeah, Azure has, oh, he has okay defensive wrestling. He, when he fought Brad Katona, who is well, also just an okay wrestler, he's, Brad Katona is, uh, Kavanaugh's his coach and I really don't rate Kavanaugh as a coach. And no, I'm not a big fan of Kavanaugh. <laughs> yeah, he's just famous off of Connor. But, um, but yeah, I mean, Brad Katona, not a great wrestler. Okay, wrestler, not a great wrestler. Was able to take him down a few times. But Azura was, was able to get up and not take much damage. But that's, if Jack Shore gets you down, you stay down. He really uses his top pressure well. And he, sometimes he does think a little too much about submissions, I think, because he's so used to getting submissions on the regional circuit. I mean, it's not even really the regional circuit. Cage Warriors is a B-tier promotion. He fought in Cage Warriors. He was Cage Warriors champion. He's fought in Cage Warriors since 2016. So that's a higher level of competition than just the regional circuit. But still, he's used to finishing these guys with relative ease. So sometimes he values submissions a little too highly and doesn't just let them come naturally. But he still gets them a lot. And he doesn't ever get out of position, let himself get sweeped just because he's hunting for a submission. He'll still, you know, use that get on your back really, really good when he gets on someone. Right, back. real wrestling and, stuff. Yeah, and then he'll just switch, alternate between boxing your ears and then trying to grab that choke up, and that's eventually when he gets the choke, the rear naked choke, his favorite, which he has seven of of his eight submissions. Seven are rear naked chokes, like I said before, the last three are. So I, I, I just think he's too much for Hunter Azure. I mean, there's a lot of hype on Jack Shore. He could be... uh a future contender here at, at the deepest division in the best organization in the world. Bantamway so deep right now. So many good fighters. Uh, he could be a future contender, especially if he keeps growing and striking. And his striking is, his striking is, well, what's the word? Meat and potatoes. You know, it, it's just the basics, but it's, the basics are done really well. He uses two main weapons, leg kicks, which obviously soften your opponent up. And then that jab, to find distance, he'll use a jab to find distance early and then keep his opponent at range and then let his opponent get a little reckless. Boom, they come in. Um, another thing on his takedowns, he cuts angles really well. You know, when your opponent sprawls, for a lot of guys, that'll be the end of that. He sprawls on top of you. You don't want him to get on top of you then, but no. Jack Shore keeps driving, will cut the corner to change angles and then finish and still end up on top and then his relentless top pressure really good um he's also good at clinch takedowns he he with the japanese jujitsu he's able to use some nice throws yeah the japanese jujitsu um utilizes more uh judo there's a lot more kind of throws and takedowns and shit yeah yep and yeah that's that's jack short he's a prospect that I, i think this is his first real real test in hunter azure but Azure doesn't have the even some of the basics mastered. Um, in his fight against uh, uh, Katona, he he wasn't using wrist control the way he should. He was letting Katona just 
walk all over him without trying to fight the wrists enough. He would get back up sometimes just because of pure brute strength. All right. So yes, I think Jack Shore, Jack Shore could very well get a submission here. He's such a prolific submission artist, but, um, I mean, Azor is the best competition yet, so it could also just be wrestling to a decision. But would would Val put his money on Shore? Yes. All yes, right. I would. I think Jack Shore should be more like a minus 200, even 220. He's So I got him at, plus, at minus 160. You can still get him there at five dimes, minus 165. Yeah, I got um, him at 165 and, on five dimes right now. Yep, yep and... uh I have two units on Jack Shore. Two units, all right. Yeah, that's one of my more confident ones for this fight card. All right, and the next fight is, uh, who is it? Holtzman John... and Gamrit. Oh, that one's next? Okay, yeah, yeah. So Mateus Gamrit had so much hype coming out of his K1 career, but he he ran, he ran into the toughest first test anyone could possibly face. In Guram, let's say this last name right, Guram Kuchensaladze. That was an amazing fight, but Guram is a cardio monster. And although Gamrot in his high level wrestling was able to get Guram down a few times, Guram scrambles, just physicality, cardio were able to get back up and he was better on the feet. But that was just, he was being fed to the dogs in that. I, I don't even think it was intentional. Kuchensaladze was unknown. Like he was, they were both making their debut, but Gamrot was the one that had all the hype because as a K1 champ, uh, what was he, 16, 17 and 0 coming into that fight. And he lost, the, he still only lost a split decision in his first loss ever. Um, but in, 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 okay, so I was saying K1, I meant K with W, uh, right. love on okay. my part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he, he was a uh, champion. Over there, he fought some good competition. He has his own team. I mean, he, uh, I was taping for a fight on this that got canceled and he was, uh, in the coat, in the corner of one of the guys' opponents that I was watching. He, he's a big, uh, big influence in what is he, Polish MMA? Yeah, he's in Poland. One of the biggest guys there, one of the best prospects there. I mean, he's 30, but he's just made his UFC debut, but he's going up against Scott Holtzman, who's not, who's another not easy challenge. I mean, he's old. He's getting up there. He's 37. His last fight was a spinning back fist loss to Benil Daryush, but we all know how good Daryush is. Daryush is a betting favorite right now against Tony Ferguson coming up for the UFC 262. And there's no shame. I mean, just levels above uh, both Gamrot and Holtzman. Before that, though, he, he beat Jim Miller in the unanimous decision. That was somewhat of a war. Um, the one thing on Holtzman's record here recently that doesn't look so good is the Nick Lentz loss. I mean, Nick Lentz is a vet, but he's kind of a low-level gatekeeper. Yeah, at he's this a point. gatekeeper. Lentz is but, okay, yeah, and not but... even like a not even like a cowboy gatekeeper where a cowboy can still fuck people up. He's yeah. I mean, Nick Lentz is pretty close to retiring or getting forcibly retired at this point. Um, but other than that, like his, the losses on his record, Drew Dober, Josh Emmett in unanimous decisions, those are not bad. I mean, Dober, I, I think he should have been ranked before, when he fought Islam. And obviously no one in the bottom half of that lightweight division is going to be doing much against Islam Makat. Oh, geez, these names. Islam Makachev. <laughs> um, but he's, Drew Dober is a great striker. So no shame in Holtzman looking to him. Josh Emmett, one of the most brutal, brutal guys at 145, had the three-round fight of the year for my money last year against Shane Burgos. 
fucked up chamber goes badly. Um, so Holtzman is good. It's and these odds earlier were at like more like um, uh, Gamrot minus one eighty. I think was the opening line, and I would have thought about putting money on Gamrot there. He he just has really really high level wrestling, as a lot of these Eastern European guys do. But but at two minus two thirty, it's too rich for my blood. I mean, Holtzman's been around the block. Gamrot's only in his second UFC fight, and he lost his first one. Just too rich for my blood, even though I, th- I think Gamrot wins. Just a really, really tough test. And th- this is one of those, uh, this is one, uh, on the whole card, I'm looking at the odds across the board, and uh, Gamrot's odds have went down and Holtzman's have went up all across. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a weird fight where they've moved that way at, at every single book. Yeah, I remember. So yeah, when I first looked at this early last week, Gamrot, like I said, was minus one eighty, I believe, and I thought about it back then. But I, I want to see how things get closer. Fight weekend in COVID times, anything get, can get canceled, so I don't place that many early bets now. But it, it, it's a fight I'm looking forward to, just not one I'm wagering on. I, I mean, it's a dogger. It's I guess if you want to throw Gamrot on a parlay, if someone really likes him, they could do that. I'm not doing it because Holtzman is a live dog potentially. He's a scrappy fighter. He's been in wars. He's been in the UFC for a lot longer than Gamrot. But Gamrot has more raw talent. So this is one we're hands off on, right? Yeah, hands off on. I mean, it, yeah, if someone needed action, I'd say dog or pass, but um, hands off. All right, here's one, and I talked to you about it before the show. This is one I called my heart bet because I don't like to count this guy out. Jim Miller <laughs> yeah. against Selecki. Yeah, so Joe Selecki is a legit prospect. Um, he, now he's I, has I he can, uh, across most of the books he's had his odds go down and Miller's have went up. So it's a weird thing, but go ahead. I just want to mention that. Yeah, he so he but he on on the book I use personally he's held pretty steady around a two thirty. I, I so I'll say right now I bet I bet I don't like to bet that high juice like the highest i usually go is 10 if, if i really like something but this this is a complicated situation because it's two fighters who are very very similar but just at different points in their careers joe selecki is like jim miller 10 years ago in that he has great jujitsu, great uh record as far as finishes but he hasn't been in those the only thing i'd say against him is he hasn't been in those wars like jim miller has you know, where, like, Jim Miller's been in some Right, and that's the kind classics. of fight Jim Miller puts you in. Yeah. He drags yeah. you into a war. If it stays on the feet and he can kick the shit out of your legs, though, I think Joe Selecki... Joe Selecki's one of these new guys, like, uh, reminds me of Sean Brady almost, though Sean Brady's a bit better of a striker. He's number, I think, 15 now at welterweight. But he reminds me of him in that he he's he's a white boy from from the East Coast, but that still has great great Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Um, I mean, he he choked out Austin Hubbard, who's not a bad fighter at all. I mean, he's a he's never going to be a contender, but I don't think he's in danger of getting cut. Before that, he dominated Matt Wyman in his UFC debut. I mean, Wyman's on the way out, but. He absolutely smothered him. His top pressure, I mean, I was talking about Jack Shore's top pressure earlier, but Joe Selecki's is on another level. I mean, he, he's fights at lightweight, which is 
probably the deepest or second deepest division after bantamweight and he could be a contender there one day just there's so many prospects there it's going to be a long a long way to get up but he he has all kinds of dangerous chokes if you look down his record and you got rear naked choke rear naked choke strikes triangle choke guillotine he he gets you down and does you dirty i mean jim miller he i, I love jim miller i mean jim miller versus jolo's on is one of the best bloody fights in UFC history. But Jim Miller's on the, I mean, he's lost, he lost four in a row back in yeah. 2017 to 18. Although I have to say for, it was against top, top level competition, Dustin Poirier, Anthony Pettis, Dan Hooker. And then the only one that's a not quite top competition is Trinaldo, but Trinaldo has stopped a lot of prospects in their tracks and he's a big lightweight. Then he got back into winning against the can then lost uh, this is his last submission loss, which makes things interesting. It was to Charles Oliveira, rear naked choke in round one, which Oliveira is obviously probably has the best jujitsu in all of UFC right now. Has the uh, record for most submission wins in UFC history. Um, I don't think Selecki's there, obviously. So I, I think it will be hard for Selecki to choke someone out with Jim Miller's uh, uh, grappling credentials. Right. But I agree. But I agree on the with downturn, that. on the down, like he, but Miller is undoubtedly on the downturn. And one interesting thing is he has Lyme disease. Jim Miller has Lyme disease. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he has Lyme disease, and he's still fighting. I mean, it can't be that severe because Lyme disease can be quite crippling if it's really bad. But that's just it has to be affecting him a little bit. You would think muscles and stuff. But his last loss, his last fight was a loss to Vink Bichelle, who's not really a great. Or even that good of a fighter, I would say. He beat Roosevelt Roberts with an armbar in round one. That wasn't before that. It was a decent performance, and before that, lost to Scott Holtzman, and that that was a pretty good war with Scott Holtzman, who we just talked about fighting Gamrot. Um, I I just think Joe Selecki is really this is so this is a pretty square play almost, I would say, just because. Everyone seems to be on it, and and because of the high odds, minus two thirty, you'd have to take. But I love Joseph Selecki here. I think he could easily be at like a minus three hundred, minus three fifty for this fight against Jim Miller, who very well could retire after this fight. This fight will make Jim Miller have the most fights in UFC history. He'll pass Cerrone again, which they've been trading that the title for that spot for a couple of years now, it seems like. Um, but yeah, he, he's very well could retire after this or not yeah. that long after. I, I do think this will be Jim Miller's last fight. And um, even if he wins, I think it'll be his last fight because he knows his time is done. Yeah. In the lower weight classes, it's harder to go until you're 37, especially when you've been in the wars that Jim Miller has. I mean, being 37 is one thing. Scott Holtzman, we just talked about, is 37, but Scott Holtzman doesn't have nearly the mileage on him at uh, 14 and 4 that Jim Miller yeah, has Jim, on him at 32, 14, and uh, 15 and 0. Yeah, Jim Miller's fought every legend in that division. Yeah. Yeah. So, Joe Selecki, his striking. He, there, there is potential for him to get caught on the feet, I suppose, but I think 
Miller's it's not, not. He's not slick enough at his age, though, to be you know catching people with superior yeah. striking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's not a knockout threat really that much. I mean, if you look, okay, look at his last wins. They're all a against so Roosevelt Roberts, Jason Gonzalez, Alex White. Not that great level of competition. And then Clay Guida, once good, now almost on the way out. Same position. Jim Miller finds himself in. Then before that was the four fight losing streak. But those four wins were all submissions in round one, no less, but still submissions. And none of those guys had close to the jujitsu of Joe Selecki. Joe Selecki's a scrappy guy, uh, from, from New Jersey. Like he, he will pound you into the canvas. And he, my, well, my one criticism of Jack Shore, if you remember, was that sometimes he hunts for submissions a bit too much. Selecki does not do that at all. Despite all the submissions on his record, he finds them so naturally. Right. He's, he's the, the, fa- the famous adage, uh, position over submission. Selecki takes that to the extreme, always finds the position. He'll get on your back, get in full mount, pass people's guards, like Matt Wyman, who, although Matt Wyman isn't great anymore, he's still a vet. You know, he has a decent guard. He passed it like it was butter and, and dominated him. Matt Wyman was really only able to throw up his hands and put him around his neck to keep from being rear naked choked out. All right. So where, um, are, we, where are we putting the money here? So, yeah, the money going with Joe Selecki, it is a bit steep, minus 230. But like I said, I think he should be minus 300 or even up to minus 350. In this with Jim Miller on the way out, Joe Selecki on the way up. It seems like one of those fights the UFC has set up to give a boost to their prospect because they gave him Matt Wyman, not near Jim Miller's level, but but another guy that's on his been way around out. the block. Right. Yeah. And then, fights. and then Austin Hubbard, who's a guy more similar age to uh, Joe Selecki. That was like his real test, I guess. And he passed with flying colors, got a standing rear naked choke. Round one, just jumped up, put hooks in. It, it was beautiful, honestly. If I wish we could do this in a video form and clip that and show it. Um, although UFC would copyright strike it anyway, because that was in the last year. Um, and, and yeah, it just seems like a setup for, I mean, a legend on his way out to get beat by the young kid who's on his way up. And yeah, so... This one's interesting because you can parlay it, and I'm going to talk about a couple of uh, favorites here on the rest of the card that I do like that would be potential for parlays, but I also do have a straight bet on uh, Joe Selecki for, again, uh, same with Jack Shore, two units. Two units. All right. Yeah. Those are my two. Those those are Those are two of my three. Yeah. Those are two of my three best bets on the card. The the next best one will come in the main event. Okay, I um, we skip. I think we skipped uh, Ignacio Bahamondes versus John McDessie. No, that's what we're coming up to next. Okay, okay. Yeah. Bahamondes and McDessie. Now McDessie, I I'm in and out on him. I mean, uh, there's been flashes of brilliance from him, and then there's. Yeah. There's been times where he just didn't seem to show up. Yeah. This one looks like it has some has some room to bet here. Yeah. So McDessie, so I want to give a shout out to at numbers MMA on Twitter. He posts, he is one of the only guys out there, if not the only guy out there doing 
legitimate stats and advanced metrics for fights. I mean, you see that stuff in football, baseball, all that all the time. But in MMA, so new, the stats are so rudimentary. You don't see that. But he has stuff like striking um, efficiency over expected, which if, if you know anything about analytics, that's the common thing. It's how many, like how many wins you can get over expected, how many points you can get over the expected points, the average points, what your replacement would get. Um, McDessie has one of the highest, I think it's ninth highest uh, strike accuracy at 73% in UFC history with, for people with over 600 strikes uh, attempted in their career. And although he can be boring at times as just a point fighter, he's still an effective point fighter. If you look at his losses here, there are only two guys that, uh, if in the, accepting going back to 2014 and 2012, his last couple of losses, last one was to Trinaldo, who I mentioned earlier. Um, he's the prospect, he's known as the prospect killer. He's, he was so much bigger than McDessie. I mean, McDessie could probably make featherweight. He's a bit small, compact, but small, but his striking accuracy is great. And we saw that mainly in the Ross Pearson fight. Ross Pearson's a scrappy brawler and McDessie was just able to make him pay every time Pearson came in. I watched that one today. It was a pretty good fight. McDessie just outpointed him. He, McDessie is not going to get many knockouts because of his point fighting style and point fighters get a lot of flack from myself as, as well. But I think he's effective in what he does against medium to lower level competition. Guys like Trinaldo, I think, are going to beat him. Uh, Lando Venata was his last loss before that, which Venata had a period of hype there after the Ferguson. That was actually Venata's first fight after the famous Ferguson fight. Venata knocked him out with a spectacular wheel kick, but then he went on a three-fight win streak. All decisions, all... None of them that close. I mean, it's lower-level guys, but that's also what Ignacio Bahamondes is coming into this. This will be his UFC debut after a front kick win on the contender series. But like many contender series fights, that fight was clearly set up for Ignacio to win in spectacular fashion. Ignacio, like, who was it earlier that we mentioned? Um, like Luis Saldana is one of these angle changing, good at finding angles, strikes, and just mixing things up, you know? Doing the Sean O'Malley where he switches from Taekwondo to karate right. to straight up boxing, counter striking, all that. But he's not as effective as it uh, at it as obviously guys like Sean O'Malley or even a guy like Luis Saldana. The one thing is there's a big reach advantage for Ignacio Bahamondes. He has a 75 inch reach, McDessie 68 inch reach, but McDessie has dealt with that before. Two fights ago against Jesus Pinedo. Pinedo was gun shy in that fight, but but McDessie was still able to find his way in and land his shots enough to pick up the decision. And when Ignacio steps in, he gets a little reckless. His last fight against Edmonton Gomez, which I mentioned, he he cleaned the clock. He cleaned him up badly. But was before that, um, in LFA, he fought Chris Brown, who's a product of uh, Mike Winklejohn, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, Winklejohn. Yeah. Over at Jackson Legend, Wink MMA, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Legend. So yeah, this kid in LFA, he, he they fought. It, it was, it went to a split decision, which Ignacio Bahamondes won, though it could have gone either way, in my opinion. And Chris Brown was able to make it so close, even though he wasn't as good a technical striker as Bahamondes by just making it ugly 
because Bahamundas, when he feels pressured, he has a tendency to just throw shit with no rhyme or reason. Like he would just, there was one time where he threw a leg kick as Brown was stepping in. So it was too close to really land and it kind of caught it, got him off balance. And he just keeps throwing wild shit when he stays at range. He can pick people apart, but he's not at, and, and I do like his style. I love these guys that I'm mentioning that do that in and out thing that, you know, step in, exit out the side door to find a different angle, come back in with straight, right? Like Adrian Yanez, Sean O'Malley. I mean, Izzy's the best example, um, but he's just not at a level where he I could be in, I think one day will be. I mean, he's been kickboxing for a long time, but he's still only 23. I think he started kickboxing at like age eight or something like that down in South America. But yeah, he gets involved in these wars and he sometimes doesn't seem to consider the fact that it's not kickboxing, it's MMA and people can grab him when he just steps in throwing wildly with no regard for his safety. And those step in, step out punches, John McDessie, aside from having the best, one of the best strike accuracies in UFC history, second best in lightweight history, he has, uh, I think a, the stat is a six, again from Numbers MMA on Twitter, a 68% striking defense, which is ridiculously high. One of only three fighters in UFC history to have uh, over a 70% strike accuracy and 68 or and above 68% striking defense. It, he's a point fighter, like we said, like I said, but right. he's very effective at it, very accurate, very good defensively, and that's Ignacio one of, isn't clean enough. That's one point. of the things I like about McDessie is he is a he is a point fighter in the way you said, not only in his offense and in his defense. And when you look at the lines across all the books, this fight has probably had the most movement across all the books. Yeah up and down for both sides. But what's funny is um, if you averaged it out, it all still remains about what it was when it opened. You know what I mean? There's been tons yeah. of move. There's been, you know, tons of up and downs, but it's even and back out. Across the board, McDessie is still in the plus 160 range. And Bahamundes is still in the, you know, like minus 185, 180, you know, range like that. But there's yeah. been tons of movement. The money is moving on this fight. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of that is because, might be because of McDessie's point fighting style versus Bahamundes' electrifying, you know, kicks and changing uh, and all that. It's what we like to see in modern MMA. It's the new breed of MMA striker. But it's just not there. Like I said, it's not at that level yet. Not to say he's not good. I, I think he can win this one. But we're talking value here. We're talking gambling here. Right. We're, yeah. So we're... you got to go with the value side. So with John McDessie at, at a plus 170 is the best you can get him now. Plus 160. I think I got him personally at plus 165. You have to take that because this is... Like a coin yeah. flip for me. It's either one, yeah, either he's, one. He's one seventy on five dimes. That's the best odds, right? Yeah, now. yeah. So you you have to take that uh, for a, for at least a unit. Which I took it for one unit. It's it, it's just too good to pass up. It could lose, but value play. It's with gambling. You got to remember it's about the process. All at all times, if the results aren't there, 
maybe adjust your process, but come back to the process itself. Right. It, because it, you're always looking for value. You're not looking for who you think will win. You don't bet a minus 400 dog be, uh, favorite just because you, you think like they them. Will win. Right, right. Like, uh, and we won't get yeah. too far afield, but I love the Detroit Lions, but I don't bet money on them based on the fact that I like them. You know what yeah. I mean? Yep. Yeah, you can't and, do that. We're talking about trying to make money betting on MMA is what we're talking about here. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that, I think there's a big opportunity here for McDessie to cast it. He, he's probably my favorite or my, the biggest dog on the card that I like that I'm, I would agree with, with that. I would agree with that. He's the biggest dog on the card. Yeah. And there's, there's the other ones that are in the minus 200, minus 300. No, I mean, the biggest dog I like. Yeah. 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 The other ones just aren't. The value. I mean, we'll get to the main event. Kevin Holland is electrifying. There could potentially be value there, but I think there's a better way to play that. But we'll get there. All right. Now, here's uh, the heavyweight one that's at the top. Here's uh oh the heavyweight. Is that where that one falls in in the card? Y- yeah, it's just on the pre. We'll finish up. This will be the last one of the prelims. All right, Dan Ho and DeCastro. Yeah. So I'll start talking about Dan Ho because he made himself look really bad in his UFC debut against uh, this. Okay. So first off, he hasn't fought since 2016 reasons entirely unknown. All I could find was that he rejected some of the fights he was offered. Greg Hardy, Dimitri Poberezets and Tai Tuivasa over the last three years, he rejected them. Some of them were given reasons as injuries. Some of them, no reason given at all. So no idea why he's been out off the radar, but He's not exactly a high-profile a high profile fighter, so there's not much information on him out there. But in his debut against Daniel Omelanchuk, he gave up. There's no other way to say it. He gave up in the third round. Omelanchuk isn't... I think Omelanchuk's been cut from the UFC because that was five years ago in 2016, and he wasn't impressive then. But Omelanchuk just took it to him with kicks... I mean, they weren't heavyweights trying to knock each other out, really. Omelanchuk just took him apart with kicks and some punches. Uh, maybe the pressure of the moment got to him, but Danho was really gun-shy. And then in, and he gassed. He very clearly gassed midway through early round two. At the end of round two, when he was sitting on his corner, he, he was breathing real deep. You could tell he was basically done. He barely threw anything in that third round until they got in a clinch situation. Um... Dan Danho threw a knee that landed on Omelanchuk's belly a little bit, and Omelanchuk threw one right back. But the tip of Omelanchuk's toe barely, and, and there's a chance it didn't actually even touch it. But Danho claimed it touched his. Uh, it, it was a ball shot, nut shot, crotch shot, whatever. It, and it, if you get hit in the nuts, we all know that's bad. But with a cup on and that as grazing as it was, if it even hit. It was very, and how he could stand right afterwards and with no problems, you could tell he just gave up. Doctor came and talked to him. He just shook his head. He gave up. So it, it went to a technical decision, which was pretty rare in the UFC. But uh, well, Chuck won on all three scorecards. And uh, just for uh, shits and giggles, I mean, I've been hitting the balls hard before, and after like a, a minute and a half, I was able to shake it off. There's never been anything that ruined my night that bad. 
Yeah, I mean, I, it I can't can happen imagine. if you're a heavyweight. Yeah, but, but I can't imagine this was a graze. Yeah, right, a graze wearing wearing a cup. You know what I mean? I can't believe that would yeah. have happened. But so then, and then his, his next, his last fight before um, the five year layoff with no real reason, which I don't know why he wasn't just on ceremoniously cut. My only possible reason for that would be that the heavyweight division is so weak. I mean, it always is because it's hard to find. It's the bell curve, but, you know, it's hardest to find flyweights and heavyweights because they're the biggest and the smallest. Lightweights are the deepest. But he faced uh, Christian Colombo and fought to a draw in a very another unimpressive performance. And then that Colombo guy has since been cut from the UFC after losing two straight. And then he even went on to lose on a a regional Danish promotion called Danish MMA night. So he has a a, uh, a loss to a guy who is, what's that? Let me check. Yeah. No longer in the UFC. He's fighting over at ACA in Russia and a draw to a guy who's also cut from the UFC. He's fighting Jorgen DeCastro who went the distance with uh, Greg Hardy on uh, the UFC 249 Ferguson versus Gacy card. Um, Going the distance with Hardy is pretty it, – it's decently important at heavyweight. I mean, decently impressive at heavyweight because Greg Hardy will put your lights out. And he's a – as much as I hate the dude, he's a scary motherfucker. Uh, before that, though, he had a really impressive one on Justin Taffa where it was a pretty even fight for the first two minutes until Taffa lunged in one time too many and just got caught with a counter right hand, dropped him, lights out, no follow-up needed. So, and, and Dan Ho would do a little bit of that in his fights against Colombo and Omelanchuk. He, he would do a little bit of that lunging in. Like, he was very inactive. He was very hesitant to throw and very gassed when he didn't throw too much. But when he did, it was kind of these lunging attempts to just, you know, move forward, close distance quickly. And I think that it's very possible that Jorgen DeCastro puts his lights out. But we're looking at lines here, and the line is, uh, anywhere from minus 295 to minus 333. And yeah, that that's too steep for my blood in a heavyweight fight. Maybe if this was any other division, but heavyweight, anything can happen. Anyone could put anyone's lights out at any moment. So that's too rich for my blood. There is, I do want to check though on the KO uh, method of victory prop. But I, I think there is definitely no value on Dan Ho here as a dog. If you're betting straight, it's a dog or pass situation. Dan Ho just sucks. He just sucks. There's no other way to say it. DeCastro, he's your average heavyweight who can hit hard. Is a bit chubby. Not that fast, but faster and better and better conditioned than Dan Ho. Unless Dan Ho has made insane improvements in the last five years that he hasn't fought which that's another cause for concern if you want to actually bet this fight, which, again, I wouldn't recommend necessarily. No, I I would not recommend this fight either. Um, based on everything you said about Dan Ho and just that uh, who knows what kind of Dan Ho will show up. The DeCastro line is too high to make it you know, worth yeah. putting your money on. So the only things that I would consider putting money on are is DeCastro by knockout the prop which I've got here on on Bet Online the DeCastro 
by knockout prop is a minus 160. It's not that great. I mean, if you get, if you're betting, uh, props, you usually want them to be even money if for such a big favorite as this, but it's a heavyweight, so it's understandable that the knockout prop is still minus 160. That could be value there, like, could be worth playing for a half a unit, maybe even a unit. But, um, as of now, I'm laying off. I mean, yeah, as of now, I'm laying off. Maybe I'll make up my mind and want some more action closer to fight day and play that for half a unit, but I'm not putting anything official on it. All right, Val, before we go into the main card, um, I thought it might be helpful for a second that, uh, our betting friends that, uh, maybe understand, uh, football or boxing bets or whatever and um they get that a minus 300 is three to one bet 30 dollars to win 10 blah 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 like that when you speak of a unit what are you what are you mentioning is that the uh breakdown give it for us so yeah so i mean units is a common term used in among betters, I mean, not everyone bets with the same amount of money. You have millionaires betting millions of dollars, and then you have guys, just just your average Joe betting, you know, with a bankroll of like a thousand dollars, betting ten, twenty dollars on a fight. So units typically considered to be one percent of your bankroll. So yeah, if you have a thousand dollar bankroll, that's a ten dollar bet, and it's just a way to have unit parity. So like, so everything is easier to get across if you're a tipster and you give a tip you don't want to say oh i'm betting this for a thousand dollars because you probably have people following you people who pay you for your picks who who don't bet that much money so you say unit because that's the standard way to denote just your average bet size so like one unit is a regular confident bet just a regular bet two units you're getting pretty confident three units really really confident and I don't really bet more than three units unless it's something crazy. <laughs> no, the last no. time I th- think I can remember betting more than that was Izzy versus Paulo Costa. I put an ungodly amount of money on Izzy because he was minus 170 and he blew the brakes off Costa. Right. Like uh, would. It, it's a very common term, uh, term among people that bet often. But yeah. I think to uh, layman bettors, you know, that uh, do football tickets or things like that, they – they don't yeah. necessarily get that, so I just wanted to get it clear. We uh, we hopefully educated some of our new listeners with that little fact. Bloop. Yeah. Significant strike <laughs> trivia. <laughs> All right. All right. Now on to the main card, and this is this first fight is a guy I hate. I I have a love hate relationship with him. He's a prick, but he's funny, and he's an exciting fighter. He is an exciting fighter. His uh, I'll just say across the board, except at one site, his numbers have went down, and this looks like a fight where um, it's worth placing a bet. I don't know how much value is here, but it's worth placing a bet. Iron Mike Perry versus Daniel Rodriguez. Yeah, so this is an interesting one because Mike Mike Perry's mental shit is all over the place. His last fight against Tim Means, he came in like four pounds overweight. He was eating cheeseburgers when he was supposed to be doing his weight cut. He was talk posting on Twitter saying, fuck this fight shit. I hate it. I can't do it. I'm going to retire. I hate weight cutting. And he looked terrible against Tim Means. I mean, 
Tim means it. Tim means is a, a savvy vet. He's, but, he's, but if, he's a gatekeeper. Yeah, if we saw Perry at his prime, like when Perry lost a split decision to Vincente Luque, the most exciting fighter in in the welterweight division, number six ranked in the world, just submitted Tyron Woodley. He, if we saw that Mike Perry, he would have blew the brakes off Tim Means. The fight before that against Mickey Gall, who Mickey Gall's most well-known for uh, beating CM Punk in CM Punk's UFC debut. He looked, he'd won, but he looked underwhelming doing it. Was only able to win a unanimous decision against a guy who cannot strike for shit. Um, but the law, other than the Tim Means loss on his record, Jeff Neal ranked Vincente Luque, split decision loss, ranked that, that is aged super well. Um, he beat Cowboy Oliveira, which that's super great win. I, I think Oliveira's one of the more exciting fighters at welterweight, even though his gas tank is an issue at times before that. Lost to Cerrone, win against Felder, loss against Max Griffin, loss against Ponzinibbio. I mean, these aren't bad losses. It, the question with uh, Mike Perry is just what his mental state will be in. And the reason these lines have moved so much, which D-Rod opened at minus 180, now he's like minus 125, is because Mike Perry has been in a good mental state in all of his interviews hasn't been posting negative shit on Twitter, hasn't been ranting. He looked, he made weight easily. He made weight by he, uh, one pound under the limit, 170, which the limit obviously in non-total fights is 171. He, he just looked ripped doing it. He's back with an actual gym instead of just training with his fucking girlfriend like his last fight. The only person in his corner, last two fights, the only person in his corner was his pregnant girlfriend. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, he's now, he's back at an actual gym. Um, I, I think he's actually bouncing around between a couple, but they've accepted him and he'll have an actual coach in his corner for this fight. And this, this is why I find this fight interesting is because how, the, how the line has moved significantly yeah. across the board is I wonder, um, you and I are just guys that follow the sport sport very closely but I, I gotta think some insiders are seeing some stuff that the rest of the world doesn't know yet because the sharp money is sharp for a reason. Yeah, it is, and I, so I think it really does. Weigh-ins were this morning, where we're recording this uh, Friday night. Weigh-ins were this morning, and that's where Mike Perry looked good. Interviews sounded good. He he was his usual cracking joke self instead of his really just angry almost depressed self he was before that Tim Means fight where he looked horrible. Line open D-Rod minus 180 because these fighters both can stand and bang. They both have great chins, great hands. But like, and like on an ordinary, in an ordinary time, Mike Perry would have been the favorite probably before the Tim Means fight. But just that mentality of him being a crazy weird motherfucker came into it. But now that people saw that way and say he looks good, he seems to be taking it seriously, people went crazy betting Mike Perry, which I, I do very much understand. He was value, I think, at minus one, at plus 150, plus 160. But D-Rod can also bang. D-Rod um, surprised everyone in his UFC debut when he beat the crap out of Tim Means and then got him with a standing guillotine choke in round two. He went to at war with Gabe Green, who's a decent fighter. Wait, before um, we go any further, I got to ask, and this is just a stupid sidebar question, but was Tim Means still sporting his mullet when he fought both of them? 
Uh, last fight, no. In the D, in the Mike Perry fight, no. In the D Rod fight, I believe yeah, he was. Yeah, right, yeah. I thought he cut it for the Mike Perry. I, uh, I lost a little respect for. Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> I always love his mu- mullet, dude. Yeah, I mean mullets do give you superpowers in certain sports. That's a well-known <laughs> fact. Um, and then two fights ago, he fought Dwight Grant, who that is cause for concern because Dwight Grant isn't great, but Dwight Grant dropped him badly in round one. But he weathered the storm of ground and pound, got up. He, he kind of almost did the Derek Lewis just stand up thing, stood up, and then pursued Dwight Grant across the cage, knocking him down. Dwight Grant got back up, knocked him down again, got back up one more time, knocked him out. Referee had seen enough. Two minutes and 24 seconds. It was one of the best comebacks of the year in that short amount of time because he was almost out. The referee probably could have stepped in and stopped it, but thank God for D-Rod that he didn't. D-Rod just has a grin in his hands. And he's like Mike Perry in that he throws wild shit. He'll just throw hooks around the, yeah, he'll just throw hooks around your guard. But the difference is he uses his jab really well. He, he has one of the better jabs outside of the, the ranked guys in that welterweight division. And as you and I have discussed many times before, that's one of the most underutilized weapons in all of MMA. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's the most basic, but it's the most useful. It keeps your opponents at range. I think D-Rod has a reach advantage here. Let me check on that. Yeah, three-inch reach advantage here. Uh, three-inch height advantage also. So that jab will be really important to keep Mike Perry at range. Um, But it's uh, either one of them could shut either one of, could shut their lights off. I mean, I think Mike Perry is the better fighter just based on his pedigree. Like he's been in there with some really good fighters like Paul Felder, who he beat Vincente Luque, who he lost arguably one, two. These are, these are really good guys. I mean, ranked guys at lightweight and, and uh welterweight. No, but a, just, yeah. Well, well, this is a fight um, on five dimes. The odds I see, as I see him right now are Rodriguez minus minus one twenty five and Perry was one fifteen plus 115 um is there value here so before i would have said value on mike perry when he was at like a plus 160 right he's dropped but a i lot didn't all across yeah, the board but i didn't bet it because i didn't know about his mentality until this morning and as of the time of recording this podcast yeah, it's a, I think it's a bit late to jump on the Perry train. I mean, unless you can get him. Some of these books have him at plus 130, most like plus 115. Uh, I would call this a coin flip of enough that there's no sense in betting money on it. Yeah, I, I mean, it. like, if you're getting value here, it's barely on the – it's on the dog, but it's, like, barely on the dog because it's only a plus 115. It's really, really, really is a coin flip of a fight. Both got in their hands. D-Rod is more technical with the jab. Mike Perry, though, is a better brawler and has a more proven chin uh, and probably better wrestling credentials. He, yes. like, when he wasn't able to take it, it means he did wrestle him, although he gassed himself out because of his terrible weight cut. He still was able to wrestle with Tim Means. D-Rod hasn't shown any wrestling, and after three good performances to start his career in the UFC, he lost his last one. I mean, he, he arguably won, but he, it was against Nicholas Dalby, who is nothing special whatsoever uh he just got outpointed by dolby a much smaller fighter kickboxer 
but yeah, he he hasn't shown wrestling in in really in any of these fights. If if uh, Mike Perry chooses to shoot for takedowns, which he very well could, it could be a rough night for D Rod. But D Rod could just keep him at range with that jab, and or they could knock each other out. Just too many unknowns. It's a true coin flip. So yeah, pass. Pass. I but but I wanted to talk about it so much because it's. Such no, an it, fight. like it's yeah, gonna it, be a it's banger. gonna be a, it's gonna be a great fight. But we're not you and I will watch it together. But we're not talking about how much we'll enjoy watching it. We're talking <laughs> yeah. about um, giving our listeners a chance to make some money. And yeah. I, I would also call this a hard pass. All right, yeah. now here comes uh, what will there'll be probably a couple each episode. But uh, my least favorite part of the night: a chick fight. <laughs> that's fair enough um yeah so we got nina Ansaroff, or as which is still her fighter name but or as more people might know her by now nina nunez wife of amanda nunez gave birth to their daughter six months ago i think it was so it's interesting that she's back in the cage after only only six months after giving birth to a baby but but she looks to be in good shape dude my, Mackenzie my wife my wife gave birth at home and she was back to work in two weeks fuck her <laughs> is your wife a fighter she's an attorney that's just as good <laughs> fighting fighting for justice right but so yeah nina answer she has the stand-up the clear stand-up advantage here mackenzie dern though has the clear ground advantage she might have the best bjj in definitely the best bjj in uh female straw weight maybe the best bjj in in all of wmma in the ufc i mean she, she her last fight was one of those like the Askren versus Maya fight a couple of years back where it was two uh grapplers who just the wrestler grapplers who just canceled each other out and struck really poorly for the whole fight. That was Mackenzie Dern versus Verna Genderoba. But before that, armbar and knee bar, which those were spectacular performances and showed her true potential. The problem with Mackenzie Dern for so long was she didn't give a shit. She would, she missed weight like three times uh, before that, but then she gave birth to a baby girl in uh, late 2018. I believe it was um, came back and was on her P's and Q's. She was training regularly. Like, I, I don't know if it was having the baby or what, but everyone noticed that she seemed to really care after that. And now she's on a three-fight win streak. And and that's big. I mean, she's been more active. I mean, Nina hasn't fought since mid-2019, um, which is understandable because she was pregnant. <laughs> but when she did, it was a decision loss to Tatiana Suarez. However, the trouble here comes for McKenzie. Even though McKenzie has much better BJJ, um, and, and uh, Nina has decently better striking the trouble comes in if mckenzie can get it to the ground mckenzie won that random marcos fight two fights ago when she won by armbar because marcos took had terrible fight iq to follow a great bjj girl to the ground got just uh yeah uh mckenzie didn't just do a triangle after a triangle armbar triangle armbar until until it landed um i don't think nino will be dumb enough to follow her to the mat intentionally so it comes down to mckenzie's takedowns which are not are very good. good. She's oh, yeah. I, she she's one of the these BJJ girls who's great at BJJ, but but doesn't have the wrestling to supplement it necessarily. Although in women's fighting, it doesn't 
always matter because a lot of these girls can't defend takedowns for shit. Right. I think. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think she's. Uh, she's real good at uh, BJJ style, like dragging someone to the ground. But I think that Nunez will uh, provide opportunities just for her to dive in on you know basic double leg takedowns. Yeah. So and that that's the big question. It, it, it's pretty much if Nina can keep it standing, she probably wins the striking battle. If Mackenzie can get it to the ground, she'll submit her or, or get the decision. And, and it's a big question. I think so this line opened at evens. The most interesting thing here is definitely the line. It opened at evens and now you're getting Mackenzie at plus 130, Nina at minus 160 in some places. Five times plus 122, minus 132. Right. I think a lot of that is just the last name of Nina Nunez. People saying, oh, she she's Amanda Nunez's wife, the female goat. Uh, that's she, what I she, think it is. That's why yeah. I, I see value on Dern in this fight. Yeah, I, I see a little bit too. I mean, it's somewhat of a coin flip. But so in, in men's MMA, we see a lot of specialists. But they're not often not as effective as female MMA because men can knock you out easier than women can. Just how it is. Right. So, but it's harder for someone like Nina Ansaroff to knock out Mackenzie Dern before Mackenzie Dern can get her down to the mat, even though Mackenzie Dern's game is entirely based around one thing, and that's getting you down and submitting you. So, I, I when it first came out at evens, I probably wasn't going to bet it, but I did lean Dern. But now that she's now that you're getting her at plus one twenty two, yeah, I do like that. But I don't like it a lot. I don't like it enough for a full unit. I'm going with half the unit on Mackenzie Dern because there is a possibility that Nina has improved. There's a possibility also that she's not in great shape this close after delivering a baby. But she will have the quote greatest woman of all time in her corner. So even though it doesn't play as much of a factor as I think most people think, it's like not like Amanda Nunes can impart all her skills onto her wife, but she can give her some good advice and help her in training. So yeah, I think Mackenzie can get the win, but it's not yeah, a confident it, bet. It's just it, on half a unit on Mackenzie Dern at plus 120. Right. And I'll break that down into layman's terms a little more. Um, it, it's not um, the most solid bet ever, but I'm confident enough that I would risk $12 to try and make 10 on this fight. The other way around, 10 to make 12, but yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 and it's a plus that Mackenzie Duran's hot. All right, um, all right, here's the other one. And, yeah, uh, yeah, you know where my money's going to be because this is, this is my buddy. He, he's a very cool motherfucker. <coughs> he was in marching band in high school and college. He's, he's a jazz musician. He's a cool ass motherfucker. He's the nicest guy in all of UFC history. Sam Alva, Alvi versus Marquez. Yeah, so this this is an interesting one for a couple of reasons. Sam Alvey's moving down from light heavyweight, which he was never the biggest light heavyweight, moving down from light heavyweight to middleweight. 
to meet Julian Marquez. Julian Marquez is coming off of a fight which he lost pretty clearly the first two rounds, but then found a good submission in round number three against Maki Patolo, a tough-ass Hawaiian dude. Um, and then obviously got a bit of fame for saying, Miley Cyrus, will you be my Valentine in his post-fight interview? And he comes, so he was minus 200 earlier in the week. And now he's about a minus 160, minus 170. It's interesting. Sam Albee's another guy that's just like you talked about Jim Miller. He's an older guy. He's been around the block several times and he's coming off of a rough streak. Four straight, four losses before that last split decision against Dawun Jung, who we talked about earlier. Right, those which losses, is, what, right, which I, I do want to mention is uh, that split decision against Jung, and Jung is way down on the prelims, and Alvi is way up here. You know, what I mean, that's yeah, it's weird how the the card gets set like that. Yeah, I think that's because just like uh, Jim Miller, there's a chance Sam Alvi's done after this fight. He's a recognizable name, and also just the the attention that Julian Marquez brings after the whole Miley Cyrus thing went semi-viral. But, um, yeah, four, uh, oh, four and one in his last five fights. But if we look at the competition, it's Lil Nog, uh, TK, or knockout round two, Jimmy Crute, who is probably my third favorite prospect at light heavyweight at the moment. He's, I think he's going to beat the crap out of Anthony Smith in a couple weeks. Um, round one, uh, Clinton Abreu, uh, unanimous decision loss. It's okay. And Ryan Spann, the split decision loss to Ryan Spann isn't a technically great fighter, but he has huge power. We saw that actually just a couple weeks ago. And then, yeah, the split decision uh, draw with that one Jung, which I personally thought Sam Alvey won, though I was a little bit biased because I had money on him as a plus 300. I thought, he won, I thought he won that fight, and I'm biased too because he's a friend of mine. <laughs> yeah. But he Sam Alvey has he has power. No one doubts that. But he's traditionally been a low output guy. Yeah. And Julian Marcus's biggest weakness in his career has been being taken down. Um again, another shout out to Numbers MMA on Twitter. He pointed out that Julian Marquez um has been taken down. I think the average is four almost four uh takedowns landed against him in his UFC career which that's really, really not good. I mean, four takedowns per fight. He fought Darren Stewart, good wrestler. Maki Patolo beat him on the wrestling before the Anaconda choke. And then Alessio de Kirku, who's more of a kickboxer. And, and um, but Sam Alvey doesn't take people. He, Sam Alvey has literally landed one takedown in his entire UFC career. Yeah, he's, he's so not a ground he, fighter at all. Yeah, he will not be able to exploit that glaring weakness of Julian Marquez here. Marquez is obviously the younger guy, um, 30 versus 34, and not just the four-year uh, age difference, but Marquez is 8-2 and two, while Sam Alvey has been in wars is 33-14-1. Uh, Sam Alvey can knock Julian Marquez out. That That's a very real possibility. But Julian Marquez can also keep him at range and just uh, use his kicking game, which he utilizes kicks very well. Sam Alvey mostly just utilizes that hook. I mean, he loves that that hook. If he catches Julian Marquez, it could be lights out. But I, I would lean Julian Marquez to win this one 
just because of the age difference, the momentum difference, the more varied skill set. Although, yeah, I'll keep saying it just because it's the one thing. Sam Alvey does have the power to put your lights out. Yeah, and I, uh, like I said uh, to you earlier and on here, I would never bet against my guy. But I know uh, what his skills are and where his limitations are. The one thing is, even besides his hook, is uh, he has dynamite in his setup punches, too. Both of his hands are cinder blocks. You know what I mean? Sam throws yeah. hard punches. He can he can catch you from either way. Yeah. I, that definitely can. And, and has in the past. But... But... And he, but his losses recently have been to tough competition. So that's why I think that's why otherwise I probably would be on Marquez if it wasn't to such high level competition, like Jimmy Crute in Lil Nog, even the Nagy right. Lil Nog. Do you find any value in this fight? Uh, no, I, 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 really I, don't. I, I, I don't either. I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever bet against Sam, but I'm not betting against him here either. And that's just based yeah. on the numbers, not my friendship. Yeah. And, yeah, like I think the odds are pretty much appropriate. Julian Marquez is younger and has a more varied game, but but I'm not confident enough to take a stab at him at what? Yeah, at, at a minus one seventy that which is like like being almost uh, sixty three, sixty four percent confident in your pick. Right. All right. The next one up here is Yusuf and Allen. Yes. This is awesome. This, if not if not Perry versus D-Rod, this is the best fight on the card. Technically speaking, this is definitely the best fight on the card. Just Perry and D-Rod have such power. It's it, That should be a banger. But this, Arnold and Yusuf are two exciting prospects. Um, Arnold Allen, uh, one of the young British prospects, I mean, he's on a, I think he's won, every, yeah, he's won every single one of his, UFC fights, beating guys like Makwana Mirkani, uh, Melendez, even though Melendez is not nearly what he used to be, and Nick Lentz. Um, Nick Lentz one is a bit worrying because Nick Lentz had his moments against him, which shouldn't be happening because that was one of those that should set up like, all right, we're going to give you this. You're, you're about to break into the top 15, which now Alan, I think is number 11th ranked. And the number 11th ranked fighter should be beating Nick Lentz a lot easier than he did. But I can't take away that he's undefeated in the UFC 7-0. Similarly, though, Sadiq Youssef, 4-0 in the UFC, plus his win on Dana White's Contender Series. And this Dana White's Contender Series is an interesting one for me because it was against Mike Davis. Mike Davis is one of my favorite almost unknown fighters. He just bangs. An ATT guy, he just brings it every time. Um, and, and Yusuf beat him very cleanly and then, um, went out and beat Andre Field last fight, which that was super impressive, especially cause, um, Max Holloway actually said one time that the toughest guy he ever fought, but this is before the Volkanovsky fights, but he said the toughest guy he ever fought was Andre Feely, uh, touchy Feely, weird nickname, but is what it is. And that's considering he's fought guys like Jose Aldo, Dustin Poirier. He said Andre Fieldy was the toughest guy he ever fought. And Sadiq Youssef was able to beat him both in striking and wrestling. Um, At the end of round 
uh, midway through round two, Feely got dropped with a right hand, I believe it was, and then Arnold and then uh, Yusuf was content to control him for the rest of the round, but didn't just rest on his Loros controlling him. He landed some good grounded pound, but he also has legit power. the The counter right that dropped Gabriel Benitez in the fight before that was a thing of beauty, um, and, and especially for a featherweight to be getting KOs as much as he has. I mean, he's two decisions, two KOs in his UFC career, and both of those KOs were in round one. That That's pretty good stuff for a featherweight. He has serious, legit power. He's the third best Nigerian fighter in the UFC by quite a long shot from fourth. Um, the first two, obviously, being Usman and Izzy, but we're not getting into whether they're actually Nigerian or not on this podcast. Because <laughs> I know that's a thing that people argue about. But anyway, I, I, I digress. Sadiq Yusuf is one of my favorite guys here, contenders at a... I'm not favorite as in betting, although I lean towards his side. Just favorite as in I love the dude. He has a great story. Grew up in poverty. Sends money back home to his family. Always out there looking for a finish, a big haymaker KO. But on the other side, you have Arnold Allen, who's, just, who's a really technical fighter. The only question... He uses kicks really well. The question is his pace and his wrestling. He has wrestling credentials, but he never seems to use them offensively, only defensively. And um, although Sadiq Yusuf doesn't have super nuanced wrestling or anything, he was able to control a guy like Andre Andre Feely on the ground for three minutes with no trouble. Um, it's it, it's just a super tough one to call. This is this is a real featherweight uh, contender fight. Number thirteen versus number eleven. Well, this is this is one of the fights on this card too, where um, across the books, the money has moved up and down, but it all seems to level out pretty close to what the open was. You know so, what I mean? So, I I'm not sure about other books. I, I mean, I can look here, but. On my personal book, it, we opened at Arnold Allen plus 100, Sadiq Yusuf minus 120, and now Yusuf's a minus 150, or no, minus 140 on my book that I use mainly, which is bet online, though I have others to shop for odds. Oh, yeah. Um, He's, uh, Allen is basically uh, 125. Um, there's one spot that's got him 118. But basically 125 across, and Yusef is basically minus uh, 135. There's one spot that's got him minus 155. That's fucking weird. Yeah, the Bovada can have shit odds. Bookmaker also has him minus 150. Yeah, Bookmaker that was shit Bovada, odds. yeah. Yeah, but I mean, Bookmaker has him plus 120, minus 150. For anyone who doesn't know, Bookmaker has, although they have some of the best user interface. And they're one of the oldest sports books online. They have shit odds. When, it, um, when I see anyway, lots of movement like that, though, it makes me think that uh, the opening set was pretty good. Yeah, it, it, it was. I mean, this isn't even Sadiq Yusuf's ranked 13, Allen's ranked 11. They both have a lot of support from guys who think they're the next big thing, even in a stack division like Featherweight. And, and I could see why. I mean, Sadiq Yusuf has rare power for the division. And Arnold Allen has is is a nice clean kickboxer, and this this could be the fight of the night. But I, if I play it, I'm just playing half of the unit for Sadiq, and that's only 
because I like him so much. He's just a super likable guy, in my opinion. So there's a lot of bias but, there for me. Yeah, but we don't we don't bet on our uh, yeah no. I'm here. not. Yeah, I'm not. I'm definitely not recommending that to anyone. I, I lean Sadiq even without bias, but and I might have taken him at the pick'em that it was closer to open, but now at minus one fifty, minus one forty, there's. No way. I mean, if anything, the values on Allen because this can be seen as a coin flip. Yeah, yeah. But if it's you had not asked much, me, if you had asked me in a toss-up fight, what's your better bet? You know, then I would say Allen, just because the odds make it that way. But this is not something that I would spend my money on. Yeah, it'll be a great fight. I agree with you. Maybe yep. fight of the night. It'll be a great fight, but. Yeah, it's a great co-main for the second ever uh, UFC on the Now, is that going to be, um, are all co-mains five rounds now, or is that going to be a three-round? No, no, just just three rounds. I mean, I am I, hoping in the future all PPV co-mains are five rounds, and it starts the Leon versus Nate fight, but no, that, that's a three-round co-main. All right, now we're at the main event. Yep. And this, this fight, is, uh... this fight, I don't know, it'll be good, but... It's kind of a weak main event fight for me. Yeah. So the original one was much more compelling. Darren Till versus Marvin Vittori. <laughs> Both of them do antics on Twitter. Vittori seems to be perpetually angry. And it's kind of funny. And Till's just a shit poster. Yeah. Till's but, a shit. But, Till is, he's, uh, he's like a Bisping, you know, like a credit, yeah. uh, a classic British, you know, like shit talker call you a cunt and all that shit yeah. you know yeah and, and and that was compelling i would have gone with vittori on that though because of till's total lack of wrestling credentials on that the odds there were minus 150 the odds now though for vittori minus 350 uh most places the lowest minus 295 highest minus 400 that one again is a bookmaker but yeah really around Minus three fifty, minus three thirty. Got the hiccups, um, and it's fair. It's entirely justified. Kevin Holland looked terrible last time out against Derek Brunson. Um, Kevin Holland has a fifty-two percent takedown defense. Horrible takedown defense. This again. I, I'm gonna keep citing this guy, and uh, anyone who listens, if anyone listens, I would t- definitely recommend go on Twitter and check out at Numbers MMA. He posts the the best stats. So. Before that Brunson fight, which we all saw what happened, he got dominated in wrestling and he kind of seemed to use humor as a coping mechanism so that he could pretend like he didn't care about the fight so that the loss didn't matter, which he has since acknowledged and his coaches acknowledged. Um, so he will come into this with a better outlook, I think, but he still can't defend takedowns compared to what someone should be able to do when they're fighting guys like Derek Brunson and Marvin Vittori, who are really good wrestlers. Derek Brunson, American Marvin Vittori, although not having the, uh, you know, American collegiate wrestling credentials of someone like Derek Brunson, I think he's even a better MMA wrestler than Derek Brunson just because he's been pure MMA for a long time. Um, he uses, he's very much a volume striker, like, like Apollo Costa, though not, with as much power as Costa, but he, he he just throws, you know, his straight ones and twos for the most part, not much in the way of kicks. He's not a super powerful puncher either. Last time out against Jack Hermanson, he knocked him down but couldn't finish him. But that was, I think, the first knockdown of his entire UFC career. 
um, which is weird as a ranked guy who's fought, right. who's had a lot of fights on his record. Um, but also Hermanson has is one of the most overrated middleweights I have ever seen. He's he has dog shit stand up and his wrestling is good but overrated. I think that was an easy one for Vittori as it should be. But Vittori basically the thing with Vittori is that he goes out there and does what he should. He might be most famous for going to split decision loss with Israel Adesanya that some people think he won. I think Izzy won, but I do see the other side of the argument. But my main thing here is he's not a finisher. He, if you look down in his record, decision, even though he knocked Hermanson down, that was a decision in five rounds. Carl Robertson before that, rear naked choke, but before that, decision, 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 loss, decision, draw, decision, decision, loss, decision. Uh, then you go back and get out of his UFC career. Then you have some finishes. But in the UFC, he only has two finishes, one rear naked choke and one a guillotine. With Kevin Holland, you're getting a dynamic striker, which I would compare him to Izzy even if he didn't have dog shit takedown defense. Izzy has a great takedown defense. Kevin Holland doesn't. Kevin Holland is 2-2, two and two, which he could argue with. And both of those two wins are split decision wins. And against Gerald Mearshart and Darren Stewart, who are fringe contenders, Mearshart's a gatekeeper, best known these days for getting knocked out by Hamzat Chmaev in like 30 seconds. I, I really definitely think that Holland lost that mirror shark fight. Like definitely think he lost that mirror shark fight. Um, because when his opponents attempt six plus takedowns on him, he can't do shit. He, and he's a black belt in jujitsu, Brazilian jujitsu under Travis Luter, which sounds impressive, but I've never seen it in a fight. People keep talking about, Kevin Holland has good jiu-jitsu. Kevin Holland has good jiu-jitsu as an active guard. I haven't seen proof of that. It's only in those credentials. I think it's, yeah, I think A, it's that credential of being a black belt under Travis Luter. And B, the fight against Jacare Souza where he famously knocked him out from the bottom position. But that wasn't really jiu-jitsu. It was, hey, I said something funny. You laughed. All right, now I'm going to torque my body as well as I can and punch you in the face and knock you out. It was impressive to be sure, but it wasn't jujitsu. And against Derek Brunson, he couldn't do anything other than keep from being seriously ground and pounded. Brunson didn't do a lot of damage, which is why Kevin Holland's here three weeks later only. The uh, tied for the quickest turnaround in a main event in the UFC history with Davidson Figueredo. But he still lost that fight very clearly. The one thing going for him is his mentality improvement and his dynamic striking. But Vittori is a much better striker than Brunson. Although he is very, I'll use the term again, meat and potatoes. Actually, it's a term I took from Dan Hardy. Shout out Dan Hardy, full reptile. (laughs) He, he keeps his neck tucked really well. He has the, he has the neck of like a Hulk or something. It's it. Yeah, um, it's got to be really, really hard hard to knock that guy out, I and mean, he hasn't been knocked out at all. I, I've never seen him rocked, even even by Izzy. You and I have talked about that before. How most MMA strikers don't use that boxing stance to keep in, you know, their chin down and their shoulders up. Yeah, you know, so they can move that stuff, and I think he does that well. Um, but I wonder on this fight. Because the money's so big, is there, I mean, is there value putting a unit on Holland? 
That, so yeah, earlier I alluded to that, that there could be value putting in on Holland because he has, we saw Holland rock Derek Brunson and then he got taken down again, but he rocked Derek Brunson for a bit. I think it was in round three or four. Um, but yeah, just was still unable to defend the takedown, but it's going to be hard to do that tomorrow. Tori, who's, I can't remember a time when he's been rocked even against the current champion. Uh, and Marvin, if Marvin Vittori does try to stand with him, it could be dangerous from a point setting, but I don't see a finish here. What I do think there's value in here is not a side, but rather an over. So you have, there's a couple overs. You have over 2.5, 3.5, and 4.5. Over 4.5 is plus money. Over 3.5 is even money. And over 2.5 is minus 150, 160. Kevin Holland is a finisher. We know that, but he hasn't finished anyone other than cans and uh, a really, really aging and pretty much done Jacare Souza, which he distracted him with, with his talking before knocking him out from the bottom. So don't want to call it a fluke. It was a highlight reel stuff. It was, it was great, but that doesn't lead me to believe he can knock out Marvin Vittori and Marvin Vittori, I, I just went down his record, and like I said, almost all decisions. You have to go back to his UFC debut to find more than one uh, finish. No knockouts. Two chokes. He's not a finisher, even against much lower-level guys like uh, Cesar Ferreira, um that's the lowest level guy he's fought. Andrew Sanchez is okay. He, decision. Um, even uh, Sanchez, I think Sanchez was totally gassed, and he still couldn't finish him with a choke. Vittori is a volume guy and a smother you guy, but he's not a finisher. Right. I think and, the and value... That's why I think they're... That's why I think there might be value in Holland. The longer it goes, the more it's in his favor. Yes. I I don't... I don't know. It it depends on Vittori's game plan. Because if Vittori tries to strike with him, there's the chance of anything happening. But Holland's dog shit takedown defense, it it, it should be... There (laughs) is a very... Clear and easy path to victory for Marvin Vittori. But though, so this is an interesting tidbit from today. After the weigh-in, it was discovered that Kevin Holland ate Marvin Vittori's ciabatta. Am I saying that right? Ciabatta bread? Some Italian Uh, bread? So Vittori is... It's just ciabatta. Vittori is pissed at Holland, apparently. (laughs) So maybe he will try and stand and bang with him. I don't think so. I think he'll be content to take him down and smash his face into the ground. Vittori can find a submission because I haven't seen enough from Holland. But I think it would have to be after a lot of ground and pound, which is why I am taking the over 2.5 here for two units. I I mean, yeah, just... We've seen Vittori go to decision time and time again. That's a bold move. We've I seen, like it. We've seen Holland get some finishes, but he also went to split decision with Darren Stewart, uh, split decision versus Gerald Mearshart. Those are 
two of the four guys who have used utilized takedowns on him consistently uh, in his UFC career. The other two being Derek Brunson and Thiago Santos, who we both lost unanimous decision against. So when guys wrestle him, it has gone to decision and he has done very poorly time and time again. And Vittori is a very good wrestler. That's a bold move. You said two and a half units? No, no just, just two, two units. That's yeah. a bold so those, move. That's, that's the third confident play that I have here, along with Jack Shore and Joseph Selecki. All right. Well, you know what time it is now. Don't be a fucking <laughs> yeah. pussy. Just do it. It's time for the don't be a pussy parlay. All right. Yeah. Here we go. This is the one where you can make the real money. I'll give you mine first, and then Val will give you the one you should bet on. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see. Um, we're doing three fight parlays. Nah, I don't know. You didn't tell me the rules for this one. Oh well, we're doing it on the fly here. So let me see. Okay. Where I, I lost my screen. Hold on. Where I'm way out of line here. Hold on, I gotta find back to where I'm supposed to be. Alright, here we go. No, that's Bellator, Bader, Machida. Alright, here we go. Alright, um... Uh, you want to do a three fight or five fight parlay? Five fight's kind of hard, isn't it? Yeah, I mean that's that's more of the long shot part. That's why it's really your long shot parlay or just a regular little thing. Let's do three fight. Maybe we'll expand it to both in the next episode. Yeah. All right. Um. I mean, I typically throw like four or five bucks on a parlay of just every pick that I like on a, any given card. Um, just for, Oh, just yeah, so you can, you, can, you can get it on your bets, but everyone may not agree with us. So let's go, let's go like a five fight because we can pick five out of 14. Okay. Well, that's picking every fight that – no, and it's not four. All right, we'll do it. Um, I'm going to say um, Saldana – Sure. Selecki. Um, Dern. And, oh, this last one. Oh, I don't, I almost want to say someone I don't want to say. <laughs> And fuck it, I gotta be true to myself, Perry. No okay. Mike Perry. I got, so you got yeah, two plus I, money ones in there. Interesting. I, I I don't like the guy, but though that's my power life. All right. I'm going with the. This is square, but going with the three biggest favorites on or two, three of the four biggest favorites on the card. Uh, Selecki, obviously. Uh, Jorgen DeCastro, which one to watch out for in this parlay because heavyweights, but I haven't seen anything from Dan Ho. 
like I talked about earlier, um, Marvin Vittori, because odds are steep, but may, they're probably around what they should be. But if you're doing a fuck it, don't be a pussy parlay. I'm putting Vittori in there. Um, All right, that's what we want. Yeah, uh, then, uh, yeah, Jack Shore. And last, but probably actually least, uh, Daun Jung. Oh, Jung, you think he, uh, he's more of a lock than Dern? More, I think Dern is purely a value play for doing a fuck it parlay. I'm, I'm choosing Jung. Alright. Just question marks with answer off and Dern's takedown ability. <laughs> Alright, cool. Um, well, I'm just going to end this by saying, whoa, it went way longer than we thought it would, but this is oh, the yeah. first episode. We just wanted to have this on, on uh, I was going to say on tape, but it's not on tape. We just, wanted <laughs> to have it, we just wanted to have it recorded before the fight tomorrow. I'm going to have to spend another hour getting it ready and putting it up. It will be available on the Significant Strike podcast, available wherever you get podcasts. 